You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The killing of George Floyd and the viral video of the police officer kneeling on the black man's neck sparked a movement for racial justice. This week, that former Minneapolis police officer goes on trial in a case that will combine elements of the trial of L.A. police officers in the beating of Rodney King and the media spectacle of the O.J. Simpson trial, all against a backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement. The challenges in selecting a jury in such a well-known case are illustrated by exchanges like this between potential jurors and the defense attorney, Eric Nelson. Do you attribute responsibility for that to my client sitting here today based on the media presentation? I don't think I can say one way or another. I mean, not here. You know, maybe at the time I had an opinion, but with some distance, I don't think I can say. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. There are protesters holding signs outside the courthouse. No justice, no peace. Speakers asking the jurors to do the right thing. How do you get a jury that is not influenced by that or hasn't formed an opinion about the video of Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck? That's a great question because this trial is certainly shaping up to be one of the trials of the century. You know, we first had the Charles Lindbergh trial involving the kidnapping of the aviator's son in Hopewell, New Jersey. Then we had the O.J. Simpson trial. And now we have the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, which could be the next big trial of the century. There are going to be televisions in the courtroom, which is going to be a first for the state of Minnesota. And it's a case that is very difficult in terms of picking a jury because so many people have seen the video of the officer with his knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd. And so many people have formed an opinion one way or the other about whether this police officer's conduct led to the death of George Floyd. So what kinds of questions do the attorneys ask to try to get a juror who is going to be able to look at the evidence in the case and not what they know from media. In the minds of a lot of people, the selection of the jury for this trial may be the most difficult part of the case, both for the lawyers and for the judge. If you're on the defense side, you're going to ask questions about whether jurors can focus solely on the information that is revealed in the courtroom itself and not be influenced by outside influences like newspapers and television or neighbors or other people who may be trying to give you information about what's going on outside of the courtroom. They're also going to be asked about whether they've learned anything about this case through the media or whether they've absorbed information about the case through the culture after the long summer of racial justice demonstrations that were sparked by Floyd's death. They'll also be asked about the Black Lives Matter movement, how they feel about that and how they feel about the rise of the Blue Lives Matter movement. So there's a lot of issues swirling around out there, and it's going to be impossible to find a juror who doesn't 
doesn't know anything about any of these issues. So ultimately, it comes down to the question of whether or not they can be fair and impartial and whether they can make a decision based solely on the evidence that's presented at the trial and not be influenced by outside sources and not bring preconceived notions into the jury room when they ultimately make a decision about the guilt or innocence of former officer Chauvin. On the first day of jury selection, three jurors were picked. Does that indicate that it may not be as hard to get a jury as many thought? Well, the judge, I think, has said early on that he's allowing three weeks for jury selection, but you never know how long that's going to last. It really depends on who shows up in the jury pool. It depends on the questions that are being asked by the prosecution and the defense. So we may see a jury picked more quickly than people anticipated. So two of the jurors who were selected have seen the video. Can you look at that video without forming an opinion? Well, that's really the question. So many people have seen that video, but ultimately it's not whether you've seen the video or not seen the video. It's whether or not you can keep an open mind and consider only the evidence that's presented during the trial in making your decision. So if a juror can say, I saw the video, but I can put that out of my mind, not consider that and only focus on the evidence that's presented at trial, and that I don't come into the trial with any preconceived notion one way or the other, then they are arguably available to sit for this jury. Let's talk about the charges. First of all, how unusual is it that they're selecting a jury, but the charges haven't been settled on yet? Yeah, that is very unusual. Um, This is a case where, as you say, the charges are still unsettled. Judge Cahill, who's the trial judge who will be hearing this case, had previously tossed out a third-degree murder charge, leaving prosecutors with a second-degree unintentional felony murder and second-degree manslaughter. But that decision was overturned by the Court of Appeals, which decided that the judge had refused to reinstate the third-degree charge because the alleged death-causing act was not at a single person. The appeals court said that was wrong and that the trial judge had failed to follow precedent. But at the same time, they sent it back to the trial judge to be reconsidered. And so Chauvin and his counsel are still free to raise other arguments against reinstating that third degree murder charge. So the prosecutors have second degree unintentional felony murder and second degree manslaughter. Why do they want a third degree murder charge? Well, as prosecutors, you always want to be able to give jurors a choice, and you'd rather have more than just two choices. So inevitably, there will be some people on the jury who lean heavily towards conviction. There may be others who lean either towards acquittal or at least are less focused on the most serious charges. And ultimately, what they do is they go back in the jury room, and they spend hours and hours going over the evidence and having discussions, and there is a consensus that is developed because, as you know, a jury in a criminal case has to be a unanimous verdict. That means every single juror who's sitting on that jury has to agree as to every count of conviction in a criminal case. And so it's a compromise by definition. And that's why prosecutors like to give jurors a number of options so that if they have to compromise, there's different ways that they can do it without going all or nothing. Clearly, prosecutors in this case are not looking for a second-degree manslaughter. They're looking for one of the more serious charges by adding third-degree murder, it gives them something between the second degree and the manslaughter charge to go after in case jurors are of different minds on this and they're looking for some way to come up with a compromise verdict. Since police officers are authorized to use force, how does that complicate the prosecutor's case? Well, it becomes a case that focuses 
on causation. I think we're going to see the defense raising the cause of death. Uh, they're going to present medical experts, and the issue of causation is going to be central to their case. In other words, they are going to try to argue not only that the officer's conduct was reasonable under the circumstances, but even more importantly from the defense standpoint, they are going to say that whatever the police officer did, however reasonable it was, that it did not ultimately cause George Floyd's death. And they're going to point to factors that were highlighted in the medical examiner's report report that showed that Mr. Floyd had certain health issues, that he had uh, drugs in his system at the time of his death. Uh, they may argue that he was allegedly resisting arrest, and ultimately this becomes a battle of the experts as to whether or not the defense can show that prosecutors are unable to draw a direct line between the conduct of Officer Chauvin and the death of George Floyd. So in the Rodney King trial, you know, the video was played over and over and was stopped. Do you expect that this nine-minute video is going to be played and stopped at different points? Well, I think if you're the prosecution, you're absolutely going to play that video because it's, it's riveting. It's very compelling evidence. And I think it makes it difficult for the defense to in any way argue that the restraint that was used by Officer Chauvin was somehow reasonable under the circumstances. That's why I expect the defense to focus more on the issue of causation rather than that the force that was used was was reasonable. Certainly that will be an issue. Certainly they will try from the defense side to argue that you have to look at all the facts and circumstances. You look at the size of Mr. Floyd. You look at the fact that they're going to argue that he appeared to be under the influence of some kind of drugs and the officers were taking steps to reason subdue him. That's going to be the defense argument. Of course, the prosecution is going to argue that the force was clearly excessive, that even bystanders who were simply walking by were so alarmed that they spoke to the police officers to try to get them to remove some of the restraints, to try to get Officer Chauvin to remove his knee from the neck of George Floyd. They're going to argue that it was so clearly excessive that there's no question that the force was not appropriate in light of the risk that George Floyd posed to the police officers. Many people who saw the video will say there's no way that this police officer won't be convicted of something. But have we learned from past trials of police officers that that's not necessarily the case? Yeah, their history of convicting police officers for using excessive force is certainly a checkered one in this country. There's no question that there have been other cases. We looked at the Rodney King case, for example, where there was a state prosecution that ultimately ended in an acquittal. We saw the federal government then come in and retry the case on federal civil rights charges and gain a conviction. By the way, that could happen here as well. Even though these state charges are going to be tried first, this doesn't deprive the federal government of prosecuting this case all over again on civil rights charges if they don't like the outcome here. No double jeopardy attaches because the charges are different and the sovereign is different. One is the state, one is the federal government. So we could see that here. But prosecuting police officers has 
historically been difficult. People view police officers mostly in a favorable light in this country. And the question is whether the officers were acting reasonably in light of all the facts and circumstances. Were they fearful for their own safety? Uh, was the restraint being used reasonable in light of what they knew at the time? The defense will certainly argue that 2020 hindsight is easy to apply to this circumstance, but the police officers have to make these decisions in real time, in a split second type of setting, and that one wrong move can lead to the death of a police officer. So they'll argue that this force was all reasonable and there was nothing excessive about it at all. But the video is going to be very difficult for them to overcome in that regard. What do you think the chances are that the defendant takes the stand? Certainly the moment of highest anticipation in this trial will be whether or not the former police officer, Derek Chauvin, will take a stand in his own defense. Historically, that's something that we're not likely to see. The defense doesn't really have a lot to gain by putting him on the stand. And what it does is it gives prosecutors the chance to essentially retry their case. So all the evidence that they presented in their case, when they turn over to the defense, if the defendant takes the stand, they can cross-examine the defendant with all the evidence all over again. They can take him through that videotape minute by minute and cross-examine him on what was going through his mind, why he felt that that type of restraint was reasonable, why he allegedly felt that he was in fear for his safety and had to put the knee on the neck of George Floyd for 11 minutes. So I don't think we're going to see the defendant in this case take the stand. And when defendants do take the stand in their own defense, it usually does not work out to their benefit. The judge has separated Chauvin's case from that of the three other former police officers charged in Floyd's death. Does that give the advantage to the defense or to the prosecution? Prosecutors typically want to try all the defendants together at the same time for a number of reasons. First of all, they have witnesses who are going to testify about difficult circumstances, about difficult facts, and what they don't want to have is witnesses who have to testify over and over and over again about the same circumstances because human nature being what it is, every time somebody remembers something and recalls what they saw, they're going to recall it slightly differently, and that gives defense lawyers fodder for cross-examination and to try to pick apart the witness's testimony. So prosecutors will routinely try to keep all those cases together and not let the defendants be tried separately. Prosecutors also don't want a situation in which defendants can point the finger at an empty chair. In other words, where they will argue that one of the other defendants was really at fault and there's nobody there for jurors to listen to. There's nobody there who jurors can weigh the evidence against and determine whether one defendant is more culpable than the other. So prosecutors like to try these cases together. In this case, I'm sure they wanted all the defendants to be tried together. This ultimately will not help the prosecution, although it does give prosecutors the opportunity to focus the case entirely on Officer Chauvin and not all the other defendants at the same time. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
The prosecutors in the long-running TV legal drama, Law & Order, are from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the most high-profile DA's office in the country with a storied history. But now, despite a recent rise in crime, many of the candidates for DA are not talking about Law & Order. They're talking about which crimes they won't prosecute and defunding the office and the police. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. So, Pat, tell us about the candidates running for Manhattan DA. It's an open field, and it's what some people are calling a historic race because eight people are vying to be the Manhattan DA. It's historic in that there are six women and two men, and one of the men is a black man who used to be an assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan and a former chief of deputy attorney general for the state of New York. So the very next DA may be either a black man or a woman. The candidates have a variety of opinions, many of them being very progressive for what we've normally seen. But this is part of a growing trend for progressives to basically take hold of the conversation in certain you know, campaigns to promote more progressive agendas. So, so tell us a little bit about the office and its history. The Manhattan DA, it's always been a high-profile position. You know, this goes back to Tom Dewey was the DA before he became governor of the state of New York. And under Bob Morgenthau, the legendary Manhattan DA, he basically remade the office into a very progressive, interesting place. I mean, like he created a sex crimes unit that investigated sex crimes. So that's why the creators of Law & Order used Mr. Morgenthau as the prototype for their character of the legendary DA that is running the office. And a lot of his cases were very creative. I mean, he brought this Bank of Credit and Commerce case, an international financial fraud case. He's brought cases against Tyco and Dennis Kozlowski for tax evasion and all kinds of excesses of the late 90s. The cases include famous murder cases like the Preppy murder case where Jennifer Levin was killed in Central Park by allegedly her boyfriend, the Central Park jogger case. So, you know, a crime happens in New York, it gets a lot of immediate attention, and the Manhattan DA's office will bring some very high-profile prosecutions. And Morgenthau especially was the guy that took on the mob Elliot Spitzer was an ADA, an assistant district attorney, and they brought a case against the mafia for carting in Manhattan. And they had, you know, influence, and they would call the mob tax. So Morgenthau, and they brought this case to clean up, like, this unofficial tax that the mafia was charging to cart away garbage from restaurants and businesses in Manhattan. So do we know for certain that Cy Vance is not seeking re-election? He has not officially said. We don't know officially. He has barely raised any money whatsoever compared to some of the candidates have raised like upwards of $3 million. And he hasn't said officially. But some people have said to me that if Cy wanted to run again, based on this high-profile investigation that he has of Trump, uh, Donald Trump and, his, and the Trump organization, that many Manhattanites might re-elect him. But it remains to be seen he hasn't said officially one way or another. As you mentioned, 
the biggest prosecution and why the Manhattan DA keeps getting mentioned over and over again in national news is because of this investigation into Trump and what may be criminal charges. Have the candidates talked about that? Well, originally they were not speaking about it. And I think as time has progressed, they decided, uh, especially in light of after what the Supreme Court's ruling came out last month, uh, granting the DA the right to have access to whatever, eight years of tax records from Trump. Um, They are now saying things like, uh, I could take on Trump. You know, and they're, they're not talking about the investigation per se, because, of course, no one knows what this investigation is except for the people who are actually doing it. And so to comment on it would be they don't know the evidence, so it's not really like you can make an informed comment handicapping what the investigation is. It's all grand jury and it's secret. Um, but some of them have, have tried to put, like, you know, there their street creds out there for uh, I could take on Trump because I sued him civilly. That's the kind of thing they've been saying now recently. Is it the crime rate or the murder rate that's up in New York? Violent crime is up in New York, all throughout the city. And especially there's been shootings, uh, gun-related violence is up, and murders are up. So not in the last two months, but in the end of the last three months of 2020, there was a spike. And so most of violent crimes remain up. So we were talking about this spike in crime. Are the candidates discussing that and what they're going to do about it? Actually, no. (laughs) There have been, there is one candidate, Liz Crotty. She is a former assistant district attorney and she went into private practice and she's a criminal defense lawyer. So she practices in the courthouse and she has been saying she would be for law and order. And, you know, she's kind of like the lone voice in many of these other uh, candidates have spent m- the majority of their time during these discussions talking about more progressive reforms, the kinds of ca- crimes, low-level crimes they wouldn't prosecute. Most of them are talking about, you know, fair beating or turnstile jumping, for example, or low-level uh, marijuana possession that they wouldn't prosecute. Some of the candidates are saying they would never bring cases of gang uh, cases against involving juveniles. But under side vans, haven't prosecutions for certain minor crimes like fair jumping, et cetera, also fallen? Yes. And, and, and some people pointed out to me when Vance took office, he was considered a progressive that wanted to cut the offices, you know, uh, cut back on the kinds of cases they're brought. Some people say, of course, is very progressive. You have you not, he's not, he never did enough. He should never have prosecuted any cases. But if people need to remember that, you know, he he's basically reigned in prosecutions of low level crimes. Um, there was one instance uh, of a forum I covered recently that was um, sponsored by former uh, veterans of the Manhattan DA's office where they wanted to hear closely question some of the candidates and where do you stand on on these topics. And um, one of the candidates, Liz Crotty, the one I was mentioning before, she said, what are you guys talking about? How can you decline to bring these cases? They're on the books. They're, you know, they're part of the law. You can, as a DA, abdicate the responsibility to prosecute crimes. She said she's going to do it on a case-by-case basis. But some of the candidates had said they will never have vowed, never, ever, ever to bring low-level crimes. Two of the candidates, 
a lawyer named Tahani Abushi, who's a civil rights lawyer, and another lawyer have said that they would cut the footprint of the office in half, and then they would give the money instead of hiring prosecutors, they get rid of the prosecutors and hire defense lawyers or public defenders and replace them. So instead of prosecuting people, they look at ways not to prosecute them. And then they spread that money around to community groups instead of using it for prosecution. So they want to defund their own office. Yes. Yes. And five of them have said they're in favor of defunding the police. And it remains to be seen. I, I asked a couple of people, you know, is Manhattan this progressive that they're, are they willing to go this far? And there have been other cities like L.A. County elected uh, uh, this guy, George Gascon, on a progressive agenda. And now his own, the union of prosecutors, the assistant district attorney's union that works for him, have sued him to get him to stop enacting some of these what pieces are reforms, but they say are two progressive, you know, me- measures that are not enforcing the law. So it becomes like quite a struggle. The LA DA's office, the San Francisco DA's office is seeing that same kind of push and pull of, of tension. Basically, then you would be going into office and firing a lot of your staff. Yeah. And um, one of the candidates has vowed, Alvin Bragg, uh, the candidate that's the former deputy attorney general of the state of New York and a former assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, he said that he would like to review the cases done by Linda Fairstein. Now, she was in the office for decades, and Linda Fairstein came under fire for being the supervisor in the Central Park case. Morgenthau exonerated them after years, after a review of information. So, I mean, that might mean hundreds and hundreds of cases that not only did Fairstein maybe prosecute, but then as a supervisor, how far back do you go? If she was just the boss, but, you know, 10 steps below was a prosecution of the case, how do you do a review of that? You know, some of these things people have pointed out would be very difficult to do and also exhaustive. And what happens when crime is spiking? Do you deal with the old crimes and review everything with a fine tooth comb or do you, or with a microscope? Or how far back do you go? And then you're dealing with this ongoing problem of if crime is rising, do you not prosecute those cases? And how, what happens with deterrence? Because Some people argue, you know, part of the deterrence is prosecuting people so they understand the ramifications of committing a crime. Once you start investigating and opening cases up, then defense lawyers are going to come and start attacking other cases. It seems like it would open up a huge cycle and a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, there's that, too. I mean, some of these measures are progressive and they're good. But, you know, former prosecutors pointed out to me that, you know, last year there were hundreds of people arrested during the Black Lives Matter protests in Manhattan. And aside from the ones that actually broke into like a Soho Chanel store or and looted the place, they were caught for burglary. They're in the store and they're caught on videotape or something or surveillance tape. Those people got prosecuted, but the vast majority danced dismiss the cases against them. 
And the judges didn't go along with that. And one of the judges ordered everybody to be held, but the DA dropped his cases. And, and then Vance got a lot of criticism for that. Oh, you're too soft on crime and these demonstrators should be prosecuted. So I, Manhattanites have a, a, a real decision to make of who they want. You know, do they want a progressive or a super progressive, a moderate progressive, or do they want someone that is vowing to follow the law and prosecute people. There are a couple of candidates, like Diana Florence is a former assistant district attorney in the office, and she has 25 years of experience. And she says she wants to prosecute crimes of power. Like I said, Liz Crotty has said that she would, uh, the white collar crime needs to be a priority back to the heyday of Mr. Morgenthau, because the office shouldn't just be focusing on the poor, you know, the crimes of poverty and crimes people commit because they don't have money, but they should possibly go after what's going on in the corporate suite. So she's promised a return to more traditional uh, and, and bigger cases. Uh, Lucy Lang is a former prosecutor in the office as well. And she's part of a uh, program of what was director of a program that was doing uh, like a lot of innovative work at CUNY John Jay's uh, School of Criminal Justice. They were trying to design non-jail alternatives and different, you know, alternatives to prosecution for those kinds of crimes. Let's say a juvenile and it was an initial offender. And rather than get prosecuted, there could be some alternatives to justice program. So some of them are thinking that we're offering very unique, unusual programs that might be seen as progressive in another realm. But now, you know, there are very uber, uber progressives that are saying, defund the police, never arrest anybody. No, I will never prosecute misdemeanor crimes. Some of them have made that claim. What I found really surprising is that you don't need that many votes out of the 860,000 registered Democrats in Manhattan, you don't need that many votes to win. And you don't because, look, they're all Democratic candidates. And uh, Vance, when he was running against two opponents, he needed less than uh, like 50,000 votes to win because of the fact that not that many people actually go vote. So if voter turnout is poor, a person could possibly win this race because there's eight candidates and of course their votes would get diluted. So you could win with fewer than 30,000 votes. So does that mean that the people who are getting the more campaign contributions have an edge or you have two of them who've raised over a million dollars? The thing about it is the pandemic is making it difficult for doing polling. So some people have said, you know, this is basically a guesstimate of who is who's leading in the polls. And they haven't done that much advertising. But somebody who like Kelly Farhadi and Weinstein, who's the wife of fund manager Boaz Weinstein, she's raised two point three million. And Alvin Bragg, he's raised like one point three million. One of the candidates, uh, Eliza Orleans, is a public defender, and she's one of the people that's very vociferously saying she would be cutting back the power of the office and putting progressive reforms in. She's the one that wants to replace prosecutors with defense lawyers. She's got a a high media presence because she's a former Survivor TV show star. Uh, and the great race star. So she's uh, she's raised money and she's got, but somebody was pointing out just because you're popular in a, a place like, you know, 
a different state like Wyoming doesn't mean that person can vote in Manhattan. So they could possibly, we could start seeing ads being purchased by this, with this money. Is there going to be a debate? Well, there have been these forums, which you can imagine with eight candidates. I mean, in my years, I've usually covered a DA race where it's two people running. They're having several debates. We're in the middle of a pandemic where people can't go to the 92nd Street Y and sit in the audience and then go up to the mic and ask their questions. So these have been more static where you have eight people each giving their spin and a moderator asking the questions, but they're not necessarily the same kind of follow-up that would we would we're more used to seeing and it's in a real debate. So it's a little bit artificial and it's a little bit like people can say what they want to say and maybe not necessarily answer the question that was actually posed to them. Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.